0: This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura murphy here. As the war in Ukraine continues into its third month, on Monday, Russia commemorated its annual Victory Day celebration with a parade through Red Square and a speech by President Vladimir Putin. Today, we're bringing you an episode from our global news podcast, Today in Focus, which attempts to decode Putin's speech and what it says about the future of the war in Ukraine. Here's Moscow correspondent Andrew Roth talking to Michael Safi.
1: So at 10am on the dot, the clocks around uh, Red Square chime all the delegations, all the kind of high level officials are in their seats. And it's at that moment that all the troops are kind of ready on Red Square and and the parade begins.
2: On Monday morning, the eyes of the world were fixed on Moscow for the country's annual Victory Day Parade. Even in ordinary years, a dramatic celebration of Russia's military prowess. And this isn't an ordinary year. So in rides uh, Sergei Shoigu, he's the head of the Russian
1: Defense Ministry, standing in a convertible. Uh, he receives the troops and he drives by one by one past all of these different divisions and all of these different uh, troop groupings. And he says, you know, I congratulate you with the victory uh, over Nazi Germany in World War II. And everybody replies, you know, hurrah! Kind of, it's a cheer about, uh, you know, this moment that's so important for so many Russians. And after that, uh, Sergei Shoigu drives up to Vladimir Putin and uh, Putin stands up and uh, delivers a speech.
2: This
1: is a speech that he gives every year, but this year it feels like Vladimir Putin has a decision to make. In many ways he has to figure out what to do with this war, the most important decision of his entire presidency. And he needs to kind of announce in front of the country what is going to happen in the next phase of this war. So, the speech begins by him saying, dear officers and, and privates and everybody else who's in the army, I want to congratulate you with uh, the victory on May 9th, in 1945, with the defeat of fascism. Um, this is a key moment in the history of our country. And I'm waiting and kind of expecting him to go even further on this note and say, if we're fighting fascism, the whole country needs to unite behind it. We need to, you know, mobilize the troops, we need to declare an official war. And then at a certain moment, and I was surprised, he kind of
2: veered away from it. This
1: was a victory speech that didn't really have much information about victory in it rather than talking much more about what the Russian troops had done, what cities they had supposedly liberated, uh, this was a speech that actually recognized the very strong and very painful effects of the war on certain families, and particularly on military families. And this whole speech takes about, you know, 10 minutes as we're moving our way through it. And you still are kind of holding your breath to kind of wait for the moment when he announces something that uh, is going to really change the the kind of direction of this conflict.
2: And
1: finally, in the end, he says, you know, in recognition of the Second World War, you know, I, I announced the parade
2: has begun. Slava нашим доблестным вооруженным силам! За Россию! За победу! Ура!
1: And that's the moment when you finally kind of exhale and and realise that this was a pretty standard speech.
2: Many thought Vladimir Putin would use his Victory Day address this week to announce a major change in strategy for a war in Ukraine that isn't going to plan. That didn't happen. Today, The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, Andrew Roth, on what Putin did instead what it tells us about the future of the war in Ukraine and about the growing pressure on the Russian leader himself. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, escalate or retreat the dilemma facing Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. So, Andrew, it sounds like this speech was somewhat... Anti climatic, because you've told me that Vladimir Putin entered Monday with a massive choice to make. Can you tell me what is happening on the ground in Ukraine that has put him in this position where he's under so much pressure?
1: Vladimir Putin is two and a half months into his war in Ukraine and he hasn't won. And this was a war that he was expecting to win in two to three days, not two to three months. And so the main issue right now is, why hasn't Russia won yet?
2: When Moscow launched its invasion, there were concerns that Ukraine's military would be quickly outnumbered and overwhelmed. But Ukrainian forces have mounted a fierce resistance. And, the war and what
1: we saw is that the Ukrainians very effectively repulsed that attack. Ukrainian forces have taken the shrewd approach of retreating to the cities, conserving their weaponry and focusing on defending their positions
2: in those cities instead of attacking. That some Russian soldiers,
0: plagued with poor morale, lack of
2: fuel and food, have, quote, surrendered on masse or sabotaged their own vehicles to avoid fighting.
1: After that, they, to a certain degree, admitting a setback, repositioned their troops sending them around from the north to the east. The long-awaited Battle of Donbass has begun. And fighting in what's called the Donbass region of Ukraine in the southeast.
0: According to President Zelensky, a large proportion of the Russian army is now focusing on the east.
1: Russia has had more success in that area of the country. They've taken some towns recently in the southeast of Ukraine. They're trying to cut off Ukrainian troops there. And they've taken some towns in the south of Ukraine as well. But that offensive hasn't gone as effectively as they expected it to. They're not graining ground quick enough. And more importantly, the Russian troops are slowly becoming exhausted. And most military analysts say that sooner or later, the Russians are going to have to pause their attempts to take more ground in Ukraine. And the truth is that overall, they really haven't taken nearly as much as they wanted to. Their biggest success has been in Mariupol, where they've nearly captured the city on the Azov Sea. But otherwise, Russia has fallen far short of the goals that it wanted to achieve when it started this war. And the cost is becoming higher and higher. So the choice that was confronting Vladimir Putin on the lectern at May 9th and in general is whether or not he can continue to attack or if he needs to figure out some new strategy because what he's done so far
2: has not worked. And so, Andrew, let's break down the choices in front of Vladimir Putin right now. I mean, what are the possible options that he could be looking at for for how to change this war?
1: More or less, Vladimir Putin had three options. So the first choice is that Putin could escalate the war. He could declare a mass mobilisation in Russia that would call up the Russian military reserves, or he could officially declare war On Ukraine. This would release a lot of resources for him and this would allow him to really escalate the war and perhaps create some kind of breakthrough uh, in order to finally have some success on the battlefield.
2: Right, because so far the Russian leader has been calling it a special military operation. But if he does call it a war, if he decides to mobilize the Russian army in its full capacity to fight Ukraine, what would that look like?
1: In many ways, we're guessing because we've never actually seen the Russian army mobilized before. Uh, The main issue would be personnel, that tens of thousands of reservists would be called up. Uh, These are people who have normal jobs, who have normal lives, who would be expected to kind of drop all of that and possibly be sent forward to Ukraine or at least to the border with Ukraine to help free up uh, some of the other troops on the front lines. One of the big uh, problems coming up for Russia is that they have a yearly draft, you know, and conscripts eventually are allowed to go home. Right now, this is a special operation, meaning nothing out of the ordinary is taking place. But if you declare war, then all bets are off and you can keep people on the front lines or in conflict longer. This would generally allow the Russian army to use more people and to kind of free up a lot of soldiers for some sort of push against Ukraine.
2: Okay, so that sounds like that would be really decisive. I mean, it would help Vladimir Putin out of this dilemma. It would you know, massively increase the fighting power of the Russian army. So why doesn't he do it?
1: There are a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, because it's a politically dangerous gambit. Like I said, we've never seen the Russian army do this before. Uh, in general, we, we've never seen the kind of mass mobilisation that could take place in Russia before. And we don't know how angry that would make ordinary Russians um, about this war. It seems like many of them are willing to accept the war as long as it doesn't affect their everyday lives. But when you start to see your friends, your neighbors, your family members called away from their jobs, your lives disrupted, that really starts to have a difference. And if Russia is already losing the war, the idea of doubling down, of raising the stakes in order to achieve some kind of success would be a pretty dangerous proposition. You know, it would mean Putin's taking more of his
2: reputation on the war and possibly still coming up short. Andrew, you described this as a choice for Putin. What else is on the table? What's the other path he could possibly take? Well, the other option that he could possibly take is
1: de-escalating rather than escalating. So what he could have done on Monday is to walk up to you know, the podium and basically say, dear citizens, congratulations, we've won the war. We have managed to defeat the Ukrainians in battle. We've freed or liberated key cities in Southeast Ukraine. We have secured a safe future for us and our children. And and we've really managed to kind of defeat the threat that was coming from Ukraine. He could have delivered a kind of mission accomplished moment that would have allowed him to kind of conclude this war. And I would say de-escalate the war and kind of be able to pull the troops back home and, and call an
2: end to the conflict. Okay. So that seems like the least disruptive choice. It would allow him to say he's won, Russia's glorious, the troops are fantastic. And this war that isn't going very well is functionally over. So why not do that?
1: Well, like the other choices, this one also has some pretty big dangers involved with it. You know, the the positives of this are that you, first of all, save the lives of more Russian troops. Uh, you could possibly negotiate uh, a settlement with the Ukrainians and, and possibly with the international powers, too. You could maybe get rid of some sanctions against Russia that have crippled the economy or are going to become more painful as time goes on. So it's a a vulnerable position, but it would also maybe allow him to to protect people on the home front and in the long term mitigate some of the economic consequences of the war that he unleashed. But there are big problems with this idea, too. First of all, militarily, um, the Russians have taken some territory in Southeast and South Ukraine. So in order to end the war, they would either have to hold that territory and kind of create a ceasefire or they would have to retreat. But the thing we don't know is we don't actually know if the Russians are capable of holding that territory at this point. And at the very least, in the case of a Ukrainian counterattack, Russian soldiers are going to continue to die. And Russia is going to continue to have to put a lot of resources into this war in order to hold the territory that it's taken so far. And that means it's very hard to end the conflict and it's very hard to stem the losses And it will be hard to negotiate a settlement. I think the other danger from declaring mission accomplished is that the war has become the status quo and people are used to it. And the second that you say the war is over, we finished, people start to basically look at the results of the war to try to say, okay, what did we gain and what did we lose? And for Russians at home who... Are now coming out of the war they'll say well we gained a couple of cities but we have been isolated from the world economy we can't travel basically anywhere in the world at this point. point thousands of russian soldiers have died and we don't know how many this has been an extremely expensive war in terms of blood and treasure and that could be an incredibly dangerous thing for russians to realize so in many ways continuing the war might be safer than ending the war by saying mission accomplished.
2: And Andrew, as Vladimir Putin mulls these two options that you've explained to us so far, do we have any sense of which way he's being pushed by his advisors and his administration?
1: We have a sense of both ways, I think. There are people who think quite differently in, in the Russian presidential administration and around him as well. Although, as a rule, hawks usually are more effective and more persuasive uh, than liberals, some of whom have fled the country already. So I think a good example is the conflict between Putin's key negotiator with Ukraine, Vladimir Medinsky, who is a pretty, I would say, uh, patriotic, aggressive, hawkish kind of advisor, and another advisor whose name is Ramzan Kadyrov, and that is the head of Chechnya, who was, I would say, probably one of his most kind of hawkish lieutenants, if you wanted to call him that. And so during the negotiations uh, in this conflict, uh, which Medinsky was running with the Ukrainians, they had come to a kind of draft agreement or an idea of an agreement. And what we saw when that came out was that people like Kadyrov, who are very hawkish, basically said, this is a disgrace. This is a terrible agreement we should continue this war until we win an unconditional surrender and nothing else is acceptable. You know, the fact that that very conflict came out in public and that that was being made publicly shows that it's very difficult to be a dove at this point close to the
2: president. Andrew, you've laid out these two choices that you say Putin has to decide between. But in reality, on Monday, he seems to have chosen neither. He gave the much more solemn, slightly anti-climatic speech that you told us about earlier, rather than announce either of these more decisive options. What do you think was behind that? I think in the end, Putin was a person who
1: is caught between impossible decisions And we think that, you know, there's a lot of pressure on him to do something right away, that he has to make a decision right now. But in the end, I think what he decided to do was a holding pattern to kind of hold on to the status quo as it is now. We have a war with Ukraine. We're fighting fascism. There's nothing wrong with the war that we're fighting right now. And you are 100% correct to support it. We're 100% right to be fighting this war. And eventually, someday we will be victorious. But for now, the war is continuing as it is. And if I do have to make a big decision, then I can do it someday down the road. This speech was curiously absent of any kind of description of, you know, Russia's battlefield successes. Nothing about Mariupol uh, or Kherson or these other cities that Russia has managed to capture. Nothing really that would suggest that the war is going very well at all. You know, this is a very abstract disconnected speech uh, that just felt much more like, to be honest, uh, Putin rehashing the talking points that he had already made public. So it felt like a speech that could have taken place at any moment in the last two months, uh, much less than something that, you know, comes at this very moment, two and a half months into the war when Russia is facing a really difficult
2: decision. And Andrew, viewed in that context as a speech that's all about buying time, how significant is it that Putin conceded that Russia had taken terrible losses and that the country needed to support the families of fallen soldiers?
1: I think in in many ways, this is one of the biggest problems that Putin faces right now in the war, which is that a lot of the losses from the war can be covered up. The economic losses can be managed. In many ways, the failure to take certain cities can be explained away. But the one thing that can't be explained is the loss of Russian soldiers. In Russia, they are grieving
2: too. Mikhail was killed in action in Ukraine. Angelika is his widow.
1: We don't know, according to the Russians, exactly how many people have died in the war. But Western estimates put it uh, at tens of thousands of, of Russian soldiers, making it you know, the the deadliest Russian war probably since uh, since the Second World
2: War. It's a criminal offence in Russia to quote anything but official figures. And those are 498 Russian servicemen
1: dead. And what that means is that for military families in Russia, it can feel very much like they've been abandoned by the Russian government and by Vladimir Putin you know, who were sent to this war, who was supposed to have a very kind of concrete idea of what they were supposed to do, uh, and since then have been disappointed by the government reaction to, to the loss of their, their children, their brothers, their husbands. And I think sensing that, uh, the one kind of interesting moment in Putin's speech was that he, he did address those military losses, and he said basically that the loss of every, every soldier in this war is a tragedy, Uh, It's something that we feel deeply personally and that we will be expending capital, money, you know, on every level, at the government level, at the local level, uh, to try to ensure the well-being of of the families and children of people who have died in the war. So I think that, that Putin senses a kind of weak spot there because this is a war that's shown us already that the Russian army has low morale. And there's been a lot of reports of this, uh, that the Russian army is ill-equipped, especially when it gets past elite units, and that people are becoming afraid to go to war, that they feel like the Russian government is not looking out for them, the Russian military is not looking out for them.
2: Coming up, the other Victory Day speech we heard on Monday, the one by Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Andrew, Monday wasn't just Victory Day in Russia. It was also an important day in Ukraine, which fought as part of the Soviet army and lost millions of its own citizens in the war against the Nazis. And Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, wasn't about to let that moment go unaddressed. What did he say in his Victory Day speech?
1: So it was very interesting to contrast the speech made by Putin on Red Square and the speech made by Volodymyr Zelensky. We which was a recorded speech uh, that shows him in a video walking down Grishatyk, which is the main street in Kiev, uh, And he's walking past these anti-tank barriers. And the main message that Volodymyr Zelensky wants to give in the speech uh, is that May 9th, Victory Day, is a Ukrainian holiday too. It's our holiday too. And the main thing he says in the speech is we will not allow this holiday to be annexed from us. We will not allow this holiday to be appropriated from us. And what he's saying is that we won't allow the Russian government, the Russian people, to claim that Victory Day is just their holiday. This is a Ukrainian holiday. We also lost millions of people in this war. And our fight, our battle, is also a battle for truth, for historical truth, to kind of save the historical memory of an inclusive victory day that includes our struggle. And this was just an alternative way of kind of mobilizing the Ukrainian people around this holiday and saying that actually we're fighting for historical right. We're not just fighting against a Russian idea, but we're fighting for our own idea as well.
2: Andrew, hearing about how Zelensky kind of upstaged Putin on this day where all the world's attention was on Red Square makes me think about the way that back in February, in Putin's world, May 9 should have been this moment of triumph, but it wasn't. And as he looks at these two choices, they're not really his entirely to make. Like, I wonder if Monday's speech is a recognition of the fact that Ukraine now has a say in the future of this war. It's no longer just Putin's choice to decide which of the paths he wants to take. He's as much of a hostage to events as, as Zelensky is now. Right.
1: I think that's a very good point. I think if there is one key takeaway from this war, it is that the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people have been incredibly resilient, that the resistance has been incredibly fierce, and that Russia actually isn't in a position to dictate the kind of future of this war. Like we said, even if Russia were to stop attacking, they could expect a Ukrainian counterattack. And the Ukrainians have vowed that they're going to try to take back much of the territory that has been taken by Russia at this point. And so while we might think that Putin could call an end to this war, to a certain degree, he would have to still find terms with Ukraine. He would still have to come to some kind of agreement or offer his own kind of surrender in that case. And I think that that's a perfect example on May 9th of of watching Zelensky upstage Putin, because his speech did seem to catch more attention than Putin's did, Uh, shows that, once again, the, the Ukrainian government has really punched above its weight
2: And Andrew, you told me that on May 9th, when everyone was expecting him to make a decision, Vladimir Putin opted to to buy time to adopt a holding pattern. How long can he do that for? At what point will he need to make a decision one way or the other to end this war?
1: At the moment, he's still running out of time because the army is still exhausted and it still can't continue to take ground indefinitely or fight an offensive. So eventually, in some way, the Russian government needs to allow the army to rest, to rotate out soldiers. And it's not clear how much longer that could take, but it looks like the next few weeks are how long the Russian army has left for kind of offensive capabilities. So one option, and it appears the most likely now, is rather than trying to declare a big mobilization, what the Russian government will have to do Is continue to carefully, sneakily find the resources that they need to at least hold the ground that they've taken. And so I think in the coming weeks, what we'll see is more people announcing that there's a kind of small draft call up in their town, the Russian military looking for more resources, finding more personnel, people being pressured to sign contracts to stay in the army. Any way to square this circle to keep fighting the war without forcing Russians to feel like
2: they're in a wartime economy. Hmm. And so while we're all watching the war in the East, the other factor is that there's a clock ticking here and Vladimir Putin is is hearing it very loudly.
1: Exactly. Every day that goes by makes this war harder and harder for Putin. This involves troops at the front and it involves sanctions at home because as the reserves run out, uh, Russia's economy will increasingly feel the bite of sanctions, the loss of consumer goods, and people will increasingly notice that they are living in a country at war.
0: That was Today in Focus host Michael Safi with Andrew Roth. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and Axel Cacutier. The executive producers of Today in Focus are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Kasson. Additional production on this episode by Daniel Simo. I'm Laura Murphy oates and we'll be back with Full Story tomorrow.